0: It does seem from both uh, the official budget announcements and from Shorten's reply that there were some key items missing this year from anyone's rhetoric around the budget. What didn't get a mention that really should have?
1: I think we would say everything that Grattan's recommended in the past. <laughs>
2: How long have <laughs> don't you know got? I <laughs> don't know if we
1: want to bore you with those. I mean- <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel, you're with Megan from the Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing Budget 2018. The budget announcement may have been last week, but it is still a hot news topic, with continuing analysis on the details of the proposed measures. Key questions still remain though. Australia's tax scales are set to flatten, but who will be the real winners and losers of the income tax cuts? And are we really any closer to the mythical budget surplus? We'll also hear from a number of our program directors who will discuss the impact of the budget on sectors such as transport, education, and energy. Joining me is Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director, Danielle Wood, and Australian Perspectives fellow, Brendan Coates, who will guide you through everything you need to know about this year's budget. Welcome, Danny. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Excited Megan. to be here. <laughs> Excited to be talking budget with <laughs> you, you
1: both. Can't get enough.
0: <laughs> so I'd like to start with a bit of an unusual question actually. Danny, once again, this year you were involved in the budget lock up as last year, and Brendan, I believe you were involved in it this year as well. Can you tell us a little bit about exactly what that is and what it's like to be a part of?
1: Yeah, sure. Well I think if um I think they say budget is nerds Christmas, the lock up must be the nerds nightclub, I think, because it is six hours locked in parliament house with the budget papers. So you could pick up your budget set of budget papers on the way in and then journalists everywhere frantically trying to pull out what the big story is. So everyone kind of running through the budget tables, trying to find the kind of hidden nasties in there, trying to get an angle on what the, bu- the key sort of story or theme coming out of the budget might be. Mm. So it's, I find it incredibly fun and exciting, (laughs) a bit of an adrenaline rush. Yeah. Um, It's, yeah. Yeah, fascinating.
0: What's your experience, Brendan?
2: It's a massive social experiment, I think, in seeing how (laughs) the government tries to frame the budget coverage through what it announces beforehand and then what it announces in the budget. Mm. And it's a race against time to try to work out where all the hidden little gremlins are.
1: I think we're actually, someone said to me, Australia is unique in the world in having a budget lockup. Is that right? I think everyone, everywhere else, once the budget is handed down, the media receive it at the same time as the general public. Wow. Wow.
2: (laughs) It is also an interesting experiment in the different health of different uh, news organisations. So, you know, Danny got the experience of being with a major electronic media organisation I was with the small indie independent news outlet, which means that we brought our own food to the locker.
1: <laughs> and I got warm party pies. Get oh. jealous, everyone. Well, gee, I can't decide which is the better option there. <laughs> Although, you know, there was a bit of, you know, celebrity sightings. Barry Ooh. Cassidy, <gasps> Annabelle <gasps> Crabb. Were you out there with your autograph? Oh, David Spears. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs>
0: it's
1: Koshy's on the loose. Oh, yeah. oh
0: my gosh. It's quite the uh, Aussie celebrity. Um... So then moving to the actual budget, what were the big key items Australians should be aware of coming out of this budget?
1: Well, the centrepiece of the budget was clearly the income tax cuts, the sort of three-phase, seven-year, giant personal income tax plan, which yes. I think we'll talk about a bit more in the moment. Yes. So that that was really the surprise mm. in the budget. It was the one thing we really didn't know about going in. We mm. suspected there was going to be some targeted tax cuts for low and middle income earners, but the, the scale of it and the fact that it goes seven years... Out before the full plan is implemented was a surprise. Mm. Overall, the the budget was otherwise pretty modest. There wasn't much in the way of new taxes. However, there were sort of a number of smaller initiatives which I'll talk about. Similarly, on the spending side, um, you know, a few new announcements, but overall pretty small in terms of the budget impact. So I think overall policy changes left government spending about four hundred million dollars lower than it otherwise would have been. Mm. So pretty modest on the spending side, as you'd expect coming into an election.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. There was also a number of, um, smaller tax increases in the budget. Um, there was better targeting of the R and D tax incentive Mm -hmm. that that's an incentive basically to encourage firms that engage in research Mm -hmm. and development by giving them a tax rebate Mm -hmm. that has been widely discussed as being rorted a lot of firms getting a rebate for something that they would do anyway. So there's been a couple of reviews of that that have suggested that it be better targeted and the government announced that on budget night, there was quite a number of initiatives around the black economy cracking down on um, illegal tobacco, Mm -hmm. doing some, um, targeting of contractors in private investigations, um, road freight drivers, IT sector, Mm -hmm. all of that's expected to yield some more money and another crackdown on multinational tax avoidance. Mm -hmm. So a whole range of kind of smaller tax changes to help raise a little bit more revenue. Um, There were also some spending announcements. Some of those had been pre-announced around hospitals, new listings on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, some spending for the Great Barrier Reef, try and improve um, coral quality. There was some um, quite interesting couple of little packages, I thought, superannuation there was some good policies there. So it's all about trying to stop um, fees and life insurance payments eroding the value of small balance funds. Mm. So this is particularly good for young people who quite often have their super in a number of different funds because they change jobs, they're not engaged, they go with the employer default. So a number of small balance funds will be eaten away by the value of fees over time. Mm. What it says is if you've got a balance of less than $6,000 in your super account, Fees are capped at 3% Mm -hmm. and also you have to opt in for life insurance. So rather than that being the default, half the time, young people have got multiple funds, life insurance in each one. They don't even know it's there. Um, This means that they will have a choice whether or not they want that. Um, The other part of that package was a ban on exit fees for superannuation accounts. So if people want to consolidate, they have a number of accounts they want to consolidate them, which is generally quite a good financial strategy it means that they can more easily do that. And you know that may have some impact on competition in the sector over mm. time as well. So I thought that was a nice little sort of package hiding amongst it. Um, there was also a package for seniors, which was foreshadowed going in it. One of the measures was trying to increase um, workforce participation amongst older Australians. Mm. So there was a change in the amount that you're able to earn before your pension is impacted. Mm. Interesting parallel with Newstart. It now means that a pensioner can earn quite a bit more before their pension is affected than the equivalent recipient of Start, And we know a lot of people were mm-hmm. disappointed that there weren't any New Start announcements in this budget. Yeah. Um, the other part of that package, which I think is a good one, but it remains to be seen how big the take up will be was around an expansion of the pension loan scheme. So that's a scheme that's already in place. It allows people who are on a part pension to borrow against the equity in their home through a government loan in order to increase their income. Basically, so when they sell the house or if they pass it to the next generation, at that point in time, the government recoups the money. So that scheme has now been expanded. It will apply not just to part pensioners, but to full pensioners and to self-funded retirees. And it also increases the amount you can borrow under that scheme. So take up historically has been really low, but by sort of broadening eligibility and increasing the amount you could take out, I guess the government's hoping that more people will, will make use of that. And that's potentially a really good idea from a policy perspective. Hmm. There are also a number of pretty modest savings measures in the budget. It was clearly a pre-election budget in the fact that we didn't have much in the way of sizeable cuts to programs. It's about 400 million over four years on what we're calling better targeting of visas for general practitioners. Um, The the description in the budget paper is that's about sending more overseas doctors to regional areas. When I asked how it is that that actually saves the government money, I was told that it's actually reducing the number of overseas doctors that that get visas, which then reduces payments through the Medicare benefit schedule and, you know, PBS through prescriptions that they write. There's some savings through the pharmaceutical benefit schedule by encouraging more people to use generic medicines, which are a lot cheaper um, for the government than brand name medicines. And the other big one was this sort of obligatory three hundred million by cracking down on welfare fraud, which we, we seem to see every budget. Um, so it's so an ex- extension of the kind of robo debt yes. system. Yes. Um which the government believes the much love system. system <laughs> which the government is telling us anyway we'll we'll save another three hundred million by taking back payments from people that weren't otherwise entitled to them.
2: Hmm. It's probably also worth mentioning that um, the headline budget position is now has changed since the last budget. So the government now expects to reach a surplus in 2019-20, so a year earlier than, the, than the previously forecast, although the, the the projected surplus is very small. It's 0.1% of GDP or $2.2 billion. Um, and then that increases to $11 billion or half percent of GDP in 2021. So it was a good news story for the government to be able to announce that the surplus would be a year earlier, or at least they ex- now expect it to be a year earlier. And we'll talk about why or why not, that may in fact happen. <laughs> um, but it's certainly given such a focus on, on debt and deficits from the government over the last five years, it was a big thing for them to be able to announce mm. that because economic conditions have improved, revenues have improved, they may in fact get to surplus earlier.
0: Especially for a pre-election budget. Mm.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on top of the initiatives that you've mentioned, there's also been some um, announcements around transport and um, higher education. Uh, But we're going to hear from Marion and um, Andrew on those specifically. I'm joined now by Marion Terrell, Grattan's Transport and Cities Program Director. Marion, prior to the release of the 2018 budget, you wrote about the less than transparent process of uh, off-budget spending. What does it mean for
3: something to be off-budget? Is it something we should be concerned about? It's a change in how governments invest in transport infrastructure and... The, there's a, a lot of accounting rules around it, but essentially what the government has done, in, not in the budget we've just had, but in the pre- previous budget, um, it made two very big off-budget investments. So one of them was for Western Sydney Airport, and that was $5.3 billion, and the other one was for inland rail, so the freight rail line from Melbourne to Brisbane, and that was $8.4 billion. And in each of these cases, what, what happens is the this is... An equity investment so it's given to a government corporation to to build a piece of infrastructure it what's interesting about it is that it doesn't affect the bottom line or the underlying cash balance number and so even though these are very big investments they're not affecting um, the, the the numbers that are reported on budget night so should we be worried? Well, the Charter of Budget Honesty says that a new investment can only be treated this way if the government has a reasonable expectation of recovery of the investment. And and what that means really is it's got to make a positive rate of return over time. But that's not the same as a commercial rate. These are not commercial investments. And and, and they, they don't have to be, but the government could equally make a commercial investment. What worries me about them is is two things. One is if the project costs more, and this is very common that they do go over their budget, the risk is that even this low bar of a positive rate of return won't be reached. And the second thing is if an investment does go sour and the fair value of the investment is not what the government expected, then this will appear on the balance sheet um, in a category called other economic flows, but it won't be identified separately so we we may never know um, if if these are, if the assets are written down unless they go for sale and it 'll become obvious so so I guess overall, what that means um i think is that there is a strong risk of politicians pursuing uneconomic projects um trying to um, shore up their legacy today, but leaving future governments to, and future taxpayers to deal with a high level of debt and a growing interest bill
0: almost removing the accountability process in a way?
3: Well, it certainly makes them less obvious um, and harder to account for. So if they were – if if it was a commercial investment, it would be quite different. There would be more transparency and and there might be a write-down of the value of the asset. But in this situation, um, because it gets lumped together with other things, we won't see that if that happens.
0: Mm. So you've mentioned a little bit um, what were the pre budget announcements concerning infrastructure, and were there any surprises on the night
3: so the I think what's been really interesting about this budget is so for transport infrastructure the the big number on budget night was twenty four point five billion dollars, so that's a pretty big number um, so the government has has made it clear that that's part of its seventy five billion dollar investment over the, over the decade that we're in. What does this really mean um so the 75 billion dollars is from last year, seventeen, eighteen, 18 through for 10 years. But last year, the big budget number that they talked about was 70 billion, not 75 billion, and that was running. The period of that was different. It was running from when the coalition government first came in in 2013 23- for the 2013-14 budget, um, through to 2021, which was the end of the forward estimates period as of. Last budget? Did they just forget what they what they did? Well, there are these. It feels like a different accounting period every year. So the conventional accounting period is the forward estimates period. So both the seventy and the seventy five billion are for different periods that are not the conventional accounting period. So to take the seventy billion, um, what that involves um, what that involved last year was spending in every state. and and territory and some of it was specified and some of it was not specified the big item that wasn't specified what it would specifically go to was 10 billion dollars for a national rail program so what's happened this year is we've got the 24.5 billion and it sounds like lots of new announcements and in a sense it is but if you look through the budget papers what you see is um it's they've they've taken the money from last year and they have decided specifically what to do with it, and, and almost all of the money in the budget is like that. So, um, for example, in New South Wales, there's um, $971 million for the Coffs Harbour Bypass, $400 million for the Port Botany Rail Line duplication, $155 million for a new Nowra breach over the Shoalhaven, and, and what Budget Paper 2 says is provision for this funding has already been included in the forward estimates. So I think that's fine really, they they say one year we do want to spend a big amount of money here but we haven't quite decided what, they do need to negotiate with the states, um, but I guess you get to announce it all over again, (laughs) it's the upside. There were two big highlights in in what the Treasurer said on budget night, so one was three and a half billion for what he called roads of strategic importance and this is to upgrade some key regional road corridors. Um, with, uh, so, it's a regional emphasis, and that, that money's already in the forward estimates. And the other one was a $1 billion urban congestion fund. So, quite a lot more uh, 3.5 in the regions, $1 billion for urban congestion. Um, and so, and that, all, that money also was already in the forward estimates. So, both of those we'll expect to see more over coming uh, probably next year, um, specifying some of the projects are specified and some are not at this point.
0: And do you think the right projects were targeted as part of this budget? Were there there things
3: that were not given attention that they should have been? One very prominent announcement in the budget was um, that the Commonwealth would spend $5 billion on Melbourne Airport Rail. And it had foreshadowed this last year because it put, um, I think, $30 million towards a business case. Now, this is um, this is a project that... Um, is very popular, there's no doubt about it. People love the idea of airport rail. Um, so so I can understand the attraction, but um, in terms of how it's been assessed, Infrastructure Victoria has said this project will be needed in 15 to 30 years' time and what you could do is upgrade the priority that the the existing bus service has with ramp metering and so on so that it gets a better priority on the freeway. Um, and th- that would be costing you fifty to hundred billion. So just a fraction of this five billion from the Commonwealth, which would be matched by five billion from the states. Um, similarly, Infrastructure Australia has um, has it has looked at it um, and has um, it, it's at a very early stage of development, I suppose. So th- there is no assessed business case at this point. There's a number of route options that could be taken. Um, but, yeah, it's a it's a very large amount of money to be spending on a project that hasn't in any sense bubbled near the top of the surface of priorities.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Marian. Great to get your insights on the infrastructure side of the budget and we look forward to chatting to you soon. Joining us now is... Higher Education Program Director, Andrew Norton, who will talk us through the budget implications for higher education. Andrew, you mentioned in your post-budget discussions the long reaching impact of the VET fee help plan fiasco. Can you remind the listeners what that was exactly and why it still matters?
4: So this was a loan scheme for full fee vocational students. Uh, It was widely rorted by some fairly dubious vocational education providers and many students were left having not completed any qualifications, but having acquired a vet fee help debt. And so this is still uh, causing lots of trouble, uh, partly for the students who originally borrowed under it, and partly for students who are now trying to do vocational education under a much stricter loan scheme. And so what the budget has got is two things. One is for the, uh, the new loan scheme. It's got Improved IT to check to make sure we don't get this problem all over again, so monitoring what's going out the door. And more money for the VET Student Loans Ombudsman, who is uh, deluged with complaints from VET fee help debtors, and uh, he or she is trying to improve on their outcomes.
0: It seems higher education's biggest budget announcements have come from the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, the MIEFO, last December. What did we see come out then?
4: The big story then was uh, the end of the demand-driven system. So since 2012, uh, public universities are allowed to enrol unlimited numbers of bachelor degree students. Uh, That's not happening anymore. They have been frozen in their funding levels for the next two years, and then their funding is going to increase at the rate of population growth uh, in subsequent years. However, uh, in Labor's budget reply speech, Uh, They said they would restore the demand-driven system, so there is now a big difference between the Coalition and Labor on this issue.
0: It actually seems like there's quite a few big differences going into this next election, Um, not just in higher education, but a number of different areas, so that's really interesting. Uh, Is there anything new from this budget that's worthy of note?
4: I think in higher ed, it's mostly fairly minor things. Uh, Some extra charges that universities will have to pay. Probably the main implication of that is there's been a range of things the government has done, which is gonna make it very, very hard for new higher education providers to ever establish themselves. Uh, The budget said they're going to tighten the links between eligibility for the loan scheme and for student income support so more students outside the existing system will not get student income support Uh, last year they tightened uh, eligibility for the help loans to new providers so it's going to make it very very difficult to establish yourself in the domestic market uh, when your students can't get income support and they can't get loans
0: was there anything missing in this higher education space that should or that you hoped would have been addressed?
4: Look, I think there were very disappointing decisions made in December. Uh, nobody expected, having made the decisions in December, they were going to overturn it in May. And so, from that point of view, there was nothing, uh, nothing surprising about what happened. Other uh, disappointments now a few months old.
0: Great. Thank you very much for your time. So, Danny, you've you've mentioned already uh, one of the most talked about aspects of this year's budget, probably because it wasn't mentioned prior to the budget, is the income tax cuts. Um, Along with our CEO, John Daly, you've released some in-depth analysis on this topic. Can you tell us what we should know about this and who's likely to be impacted?
1: Well, it, it takes a couple of days to get through this because it was an incredibly complicated tax package and highly unusual in the fact that they're effectively locking in tax cuts. Seven years into the future, up to three elections yeah. away, so it, it took us a while to get through it. But ultimately, we were looking at distributional questions: um, who'll pay more, who'll pay less. There's obviously a, a whole, you know, broader question of whether it's affordable to offer such big tax cuts, mm-hmm. and also what are the kind of economic efficiency impacts of of changing the tax scales in this way. So I think this is going to be one of those sleeper budgets where we sort of gradually find out more or think as people think more in detail about what the the plan will actually mean. Mm. But in terms of the distributional impacts, the first stage is the new low and middle income tax offset, which we're calling the Lamington, which has more of a ring to it. it. (laughs) Um, That involves sort of modest effective tax cuts for people on low middle and probably what we call upper middle incomes up to one hundred and twenty five thousand mm. and it's a tax offset so it means that you actually get the tax back after you filed your tax return at the end of the year um, that costs about four billion dollars a year for the first four years that it's in place um, and that is kind of largely targeted at middle income earners that's someone earning about forty five thousand dollars a year mm. the full tax plan is more comprehensive and it involves sort of gradually shifting the thresholds of the tax brackets until you get out to the, the third stage and then the 37 cent bracket actually comes out. So we now have a world where someone paying $40,000 is on the 32 and a half cent bracket. And that bracket goes all the way up to $200,000 where the top tax bracket kicks in. So it's a substantial flattening of the tax scale. And we estimate that once that plan is fully implemented, so if you go out 10 years, full three stages have been put in place. We're going to be losing about $25 billion a year in tax revenues compared to if we hadn't changed the tax scales wow. and about 15 billion are lost to tax cuts for the top 20% of income earners. So people that would be earning more than 87,000 today. Hmm. So the the majority of the cost of the plan is in tax, in tax cuts for high income earners. But in a way that's not surprising. We know that high income earners pay much more tax in dollar terms and as a share of their income than low income earners. So any change that you do to the tax scales will tend to disproportionately benefit those on high incomes.
0: So in, in your analysis, you specifically talk about bracket creep and its impact. Um, can you give us a little bit of an understanding of exactly what bracket creep is and why we should care about it?
1: So bracket creep is where when people's wages are rising, a higher share of their income is earned in a higher tax bracket. Effectively, that means their average tax tax rate rises. So this is not just about people jumping up from one tax bracket to another. It applies to anyone. So as your wages rise, your average tax rates are going to increase over time. Mm -hmm. What that means is government tax take gradually rises and we see governments periodically will give back bracket creep through adjusting the tax scales. So the really important thing when thinking about these tax changes is You know, what would the world look like if we didn't do anything? And the point is, is if you let bracket creep run unchecked, the biggest increases in tax are actually for middle income earners. They experience the strongest increase in their average tax rates as a result of bracket creep. Mm -hmm. And what this plan does is it partially reverses that process. So we see that average tax rates are lower for everyone than they would have been if you just let bracket creep run its course but they're still somewhat higher than they are now. So middle-income earners, for example, someone right in the middle of the tax distribution at the moment faces an average tax rate of about 15%. With this plan, it will be about 18% by 2028. The plan means that people on high incomes stay on about the same average tax rate. That means the share of tax by the the time the plan is fully operational, being paid by high-income earners actually falls slightly It's currently about 50% of tax is paid by people in the top 10% of the income distribution. That'll fall to about 48%. So it's slightly, it makes the tax system slightly less progressive than what we have now, but it's still better than it would be if we'd let bracket trade run its course for 10 years. Mm.
0: So you've said this is a seven year plan. Is it, how likely is it that seven years from now this will have been implemented?
1: That's a great question. Well, we've, you know, the question is actually whether we're going to see it implemented in the next few months even I think. So there's, I think the government is going to face a challenge getting this through the Senate as a whole. It's clearly stated that it sees this as a a package and it's not to be broken up. But We have seen them say the same thing, for example, on the company tax cuts and it did end up taking the pragmatic approach and Mm -hmm. dividing it into segments. Certainly some of the benches have expressed reservations, particularly about the third stage of the plan, mm. which is the, the stage that pulls out that tax bracket and, and really flattens the middle of the tax scale. Mm. So I think first question mark is whether it gets through yeah. the Senate <laughs> and then whether it survives another two elections, if it does, yeah. is very much an open question. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: Um, so that's kind of, talking about what is gonna cost the budget. And realistically, in order to get that and still have a budget surplus, we also need to have some kind of revenue. Um, So you've mentioned that there is a budget surplus predicted for 2019-20, Brendan, in news that will surprise nobody. Um, Is it just the same old story of it being two years away or are we actually likely to see a balanced budget uh for the first time this decade given that we do have such such a number of cuts
2: well first i'd say it is a new story in the sense that they've brought forward by a year when they expect the surplus to happen so 2019 20 is now when they think they'll get to surplus as opposed to 2020 21 Mm. so you know it's getting closer for once which is nicer than it getting further away (laughs) which is the um the story we've been told every budget for essentially the last decade (laughs) um so it's worth thinking about why has that happened and it's essentially because You know, the government has finally had some luck. This is the first time for a decade that a treasurer has actually seen upside to their budget forecasts Mm. um, uh, rather than further downside. So all the way from the global financial crisis onwards, Treasury and the governments of the day have been expecting an increase in revenues. Those increases in revenues have not manifested. It's gone very much the other way. Each budget's seen a downgrade in revenues for company tax, for personal income tax and the like. That has meant that as the budget has been projected to return to surplus, those those expected returns to surplus just haven't manifested. The, the horizon has continued to sort of move further away as time has gone on. Mm. This is the first year where it's actually come forward. And mm. the reason is because essentially we've, we've had a lot more tax revenues coming in the last six months. In fact, in my EFO in December, so the mid-year fiscal and economic update, there was an increase in tax revenues and the government made a choice not to reflect them in the forecasts. Mm. Um, And part of that is probably because they were expecting this would be a pre-election budget and they were keeping their powder dry. And this time around, we've seen a further increase in revenues, um, particularly personal income tax and company tax, and they've reflected them, building them into the forecast going forward. So total um, receipts are up about $32 billion over the next four years to 2021-22 compared to December. Um, A lot of that's because companies are actually starting to that pay more tax because they've worn through or they've they've run down the losses that they had from the GFC so when a company makes a loss they're allowed to then offset that against future profits that they would otherwise or taxes they would pay on future profits mm-hmm. um, so that's certainly one factor that's been playing out and there's a there's it seems to be it seems to be the case although it's hard to tell from the publicly available figures that um, the the, purport, the amount of losses that are sort of yet to be claimed is start uh, to f- really fall off to the point where companies are actually starting to pay tax. Mm. Um, commodity prices are also up, which um, certainly helps because essentially what happens is um, if commodity prices rise, that's pure profit for for mining companies that you know their costs really haven't changed, so they earn much higher revenues, have high profits, and then have, pay high taxes on those. So that increases the company tax take as well. And then while wages have been pretty flat. Um, which has been a dominant political story over the last couple of years, personal income tax revenues have actually risen quite a lot because uh, employment's increased. So uh, more people are working. Part of that's about more migration means more um, people of working age coming in and working full time. It's also an increase in, in um, employment amongst working age Australians as well, um, so the incumbent population. And so all of that means that the forecast is going to take place in 2019-20, although it's really small, yeah. and it would just it would take a tiny downgrade to those revenue forecasts for that to disappear. But it was a great news story for the government to be able to announce that, um, given that both sides of politics are not just battling it out over the size of the tax cuts, but which of them um, in the political debate is likely to be the better sort of economic steward for the economy and for the budget. Mm-hmm. Now, on, on the actual budget itself, look, all budgets have – Mm fudges there's always something in there that makes the story look better than it perhaps otherwise should what (laughs) and this budget's no different (laughs) but you know in consistent with you know Turnbull's view of business the Prime Minister's view of business as being agile you also have to be agile and innovative with your fudges and (laughs) um, what was fascinating in this lockup was to see a lot of the journos grilling uh, Scott Morrison and Matthias Cormann, the finance minister and the staffers, on mm-hmm. on some of the forecasts, so they're very much alive to the tricks that have been used in the past, mm. and they were not going to let them get away with them this time round. But there's been a big change in the types of fudges that we've seen this budget compared to last ones. So budgets past have all been about unrealistic forecasts for nominal GDP um, and for government revenues. So you know there's been assumptions that tax revenues would, would inc- increase really quickly, and that has not come to pass. Um, and so government the government this year certainly didn't try that anywhere near as much as it did in the past. Um, as Danny's written about recently, there's been a push to last year was all about reclassifying federal money for transport infrastructure projects as being off money. so this is money given to the states. The government is now taking you know capital um, investments, capital stakes in some of these big, these big projects um, and the trouble is if the if the uh, what it means is that it doesn't affect the budget bottom line because you know they're expecting to get their money back in the future so it's basically about the accounting treatment mm. so this year was all about budget surpluses in spite of the tax cuts that Danny's talked about were are all built on really strong spending restraint so an assumption that without actually making policy changes that would affect the amount of spending the government's assuming that spending will be really will grow really slowly so mm. as revenues increase you know, the banking, the revenues, the, the tax mm. rises or um, the increase in revenues of the last sort of six months. Spending is supposed to only grow by 0.7% in 2021 and 0.5% in, in 2021-22. And that's after adjusting for inflation. Health spending is only expected to grow by 1.9% in 2018-19. Um, sorry, it's 1.9% a year over the next five years compared to 3.8% over the past five years. And then there's a bunch of areas where spending is actually supposed to fall in absolute terms. So that's the court system, housing, so much for a housing affordability (laughs) crisis, although we can talk about that. And then agriculture and transport are all forecast to fall in absolute terms between 2017, 18 and 2021, 22. Then there's also the wages forecast probably still are optimistic. So they're Mm. expecting wages to actually get to 3.5% growth by out of the end of the Ford estimates by 2020-21, up from about 2% today. And so, like the Reserve Bank, the Treasurer is really relying upon, um, he's being optimistic that strong growth in full-time employment is going to uh, translate into wages. So wages are starting to rise in a bunch of advanced economies, um, particularly in the US. And the RBA, in its recent statement of monetary policy, was... You know quite hopeful in its its framing of the wages story pointing to a small increase in the survey number of firms that expect there to be faster wages growth in future but you know it they're not they're not super strong it's not super strong evidence that wages are going to rise and it's a big call to, to bank that into your baseline forecasts mm-hmm. and it's fair to say economists probably don't fully understand why wages are growing so slowly you know some combination of technology potentially casualization of the workforce Weaker bargaining power of workers, but it's an issue around the world, not just in Australia. Um, and then, of course, there are the hollow logs. Um, so these are the things that governments do where they announce uh, some sort of budget change and say it's going to raise a whole bunch of money, but there's no way to actually tell whether that money would have been raised. So the welfare crackdown is a classic case of that. You don't know whether that welfare crackdown actually is going to raise the money that's uh, proposed. Mm. Multinational tax avoidance, same thing. You say you're giving a bunch of money, to the ATO, to go and... Uh, crack down on on multinationals but we don't really know whether that's true so if it's if it's not true then it ends up just being make allowing the government to make the budget books work better mm. and I think Danny picked up on it before the tobacco uh, tax on tobacco is basically just a crude bring forward of revenue because they're gonna basically tax tobacco at the port as opposed to in the warehouse and conveniently that brings forward three point three billion dollars of revenue it just happens to fall in 2019 20 which is the year that they need a budget surplus <laughs> That is only two point two billion dollars right now. Huh. So you know <laughs> But you know, if you can do it, why not? So he brings forward the revenue, makes the budget books look better, and it's a but it's a one off gain, it will never happen again.
0: So in your opinion, stake your life on it. How likely are we actually to see a surplus in nineteen twenty? Based um, on all that. I, I
2: would have thought it's a fair chance. Yeah. Um, I'd say it'd be a fifty fifty chance mm. and the, cha- the, the fact is that if the government looks like it wasn't going to get there in next year's budget, they'd find some more hollow logs to make sure they do get there. <laughs> um, the que- so, look, we're, the, the general story is, yes, we are heading towards surpluses in the short term because the economy is improving. Mm. Now, there is a longer-term story about whether as the population ages, you'll start to see spending rise again, and that might start to work the other way. But in the short term, yeah, the budget should probably improve from where it is now.
4: Mm.
0: As always, uh, our opposition leader, Bill Shorten, has provided his thoughts on this year's budget. Were there any surprises there?
1: Well, we certainly expected that he would try and outdo the Turnbull government's tax cuts, and they certainly have for the the first stage. So what the opposition leader said last night is they will support the first stage of the tax cuts, and if they get into government, they'll go further, effectively um, almost doubling the amount that they'd give back through the the tax offset. And the reason they're able to do that is they've just got a lot more money to play with. Mm. So Labor's already said it won't support the company tax cuts, which saves them $80 billion over 10 years. They've announced a number of policies that actually raise revenue. So um, capital gains tax and negative gearing, um, crackdown on family trusts, dividend imputation refunds, Mm -hmm. all of those mean that they've actually got a a lot of revenue that they want to use partly by giving income tax cuts, partly by saying they're going to spend more. And there was a few sort of spending announcements last night around um, MRI machines for regional areas, more spending on TAFE. Mm -hmm. And then they also want to claim to be better economic managers by running bigger surpluses in the government. So. That's the broad strategy. And I think it's actually really interesting because it means when we go to the le- next election, there is actually quite a, a clear choice mm. between um, you know, potentially higher taxes, higher spending, bigger budget surpluses, or lower taxes, less spending, but still a claim of responsible economic management. So mm. there's a, a genuine distinction now between the parties. Mm, interesting.
0: It does seem from both... Uh, the official budget announcements and from Shorten's reply, that there were some key items missing this year from anyone's rhetoric around the budget. What didn't get a mention that really should have?
1: I think we would say everything that (laughs) Grattan's recommended in the past.
2: How long have (laughs) you got? (laughs) I don't know if we want to
1: bore you with those. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that people might have expected to see there... Was some change in new start? Mm. There was a real sort of groundswell of community support going into this budget, and almost a sort of coalition between you know unions, business groups, community services organizations saying that the level is just too low. Mm. Um in fact, almost, um, very unhelpfully low for someone trying to get back into the workforce if mm-hmm. they don't have enough to actually surpri- um, survive and make themselves presentable for job interviews. It's very counterproductive to have have the level so low. So I think a lot of people would have been disappointed to see that there was nothing in New Start. And again, in Bill Shorten's announcement last night, he's flagged a review. Mm. He certainly flagged that they'll they'll be looking to increase it, but but no firm statements yet as to what Labor would do either.
0: Mm. And Brendan. Let's talk housing because it's a podcast with you and I in it, so we should talk housing.
2: So, like, <laughs> let's just say at the, uh, at the outset that I have been woefully ineffective in lobbying the government to make the changes that we recommend. Advocating.
0: On... Are you, have you got a performance review coming up here at Grattan? <laughs> that's next week.
2: This might be my last podcast here if, uh, if, the, if this budget is uh, a measure of my success. Um, look, so on housing, the only thing that's there is a measure to essentially try to stop land banking by developers on the urban fringe so this is where basically developers buy up land uh, it gets rezoned for um for um for greenfield housing and then they essentially sit on it um and um, capture the windfall gain from the the land going up in value and not and not developing and the idea is essentially to stop them from uh, being able to claim the costs of holding that land against um you know any capital gains tax they would pay when they eventually sell it, mm-hmm. but I'd be surprised. It's very small. It won't make much difference, and it will, there'll be some issues in trying to implement that. But mm-hmm. apart from that, there was no increase in. I know the affordable housing community was very disappointed not to see any increase in um, funding for social and affordable housing, and there is a case there for for doing that. Um, nothing really else on the housing side was there last year's budget was about housing even then at the time we said it was pretty mm. a pretty small set of measures that weren't going to make much difference and it's fair to say that you know the the opportunity is still there for either party to to advocate a serious platform to make housing much more affordable neither side has really done it to date. Mm. and the other thing that we did uh um, push for advocate for in the build-up to the budget was increasing or not increasing the super guarantee to 12 percent that would save a good two billion dollars in the long term half a billion dollars in 2021 22 Um, unfortunately they have not made that call yet Um, that's still a live option on the table given the budget savings I can see it would be quite attractive and we don't think there's any real case for raising the SG from where it is now. Mm. But no, hopefully I'll still be around for the next podcast despite (laughs) my best efforts.
0: Thank you once again for joining me, Danny and Brendan, for what's becoming an annual chat about the budget. Uh, Fingers crossed this time next year we'll be talking about the budget surplus, hey? (laughs) It'll be on its way. Um, As always, you can find all of Grattan's news, research and events by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute, or head over to our website, grattan.edu.au. If you'd like to get more insights from Danielle and Brendan, you can head over to their Twitter feeds. It's at Brendan Coates or at Danielle I Wood. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help others to find it by heading over to iTunes to give us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.